welcome to What is X, a podcast for The Point magazine. I'm your regular host, Justin E.H. Smith. You all know me by now. On each episode, we discuss some question with a guest of the form What is X, where the variable is filled in by some rather difficult or abstract or abstruse concept that people have had difficulty defining over the centuries. Today, we're going to be talking about an evergreen concept, money. What is money? And I'm talking to Joseph Tingley, who is a professor of philosophy at the University of South Dakota in Vermilion, South Dakota, uh, who is also the editor of a major project in which I am involved called The Palgrave Handbook of Philosophy and Money. So welcome, Joseph. Well, thank you. Great. It's great to be here. And thanks for having this conversation. I really look forward to it. I have to admit, I have an ulterior motivation, which is... Um, I'm curious what you think money is. I'm not. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, you're turning the tables on me. really yeah, or Immediately. Yeah. I, I'm yeah. not. I'm not uh, sure what money is. So um, yeah. this is a way for me doing research. I'll, I'll be taking notes on what you say. Well, I, I guess one way to get started is to try to look at the borderline cases. Right. And that's what a scholar of the history of money does uh, is looks at the origins where you have transactions that involve objects that seem to represent something, but that it's hard to say whether this counts as money or not. For example, sperm whale teeth uh, in um, pre-contact Polynesia or something like that. Um, so it these wouldn't be money, I think. Um, I'm not sure if uh, they were being traded for their own sake but if they're being traded because they stand in for something else then they're money um and that seems to be pretty crucial but i'm not so sure um well, and let me if yeah. i could just, a signal already uh -huh. a, a, a huge problem when <laughs> trying to understand money by looking at its historical origins yeah. and that there are certain things that survive history such mm -hmm. as as you said objects mm -hmm. uh, teeth metal um sticks there are other things that are just not there in the historical yeah. record so beliefs yeah. um, social formations um, political beliefs um and so if one uh approaches the origins of money by assuming that what one needs to find is an object, mm -hmm. in a way, you're already begging the question, as it were, mm -hmm. as to mm -hmm. what, what money is. Interesting, yeah. Uh, so and I guess, a, yeah, go ahead. And a, what, the, the major fault line um, between the two camps of what money is, is one, it's an object, and then what mm -hmm. kind of object is it? Mm -hmm. And two, is it is not an object at all. It's a social mm -hmm. relationship. Mm -hmm. um, in which case you may not find, you may, no matter how deep you dig, um, mm. there's there's nothing to be found right. in the, the archaeological strata. That's so interesting because uh, again, my first stab when you turned the tables and asked me the question was that well, 
it could be an object, but even if it's an object, that's just a kind of contingent feature of it. The object has to be a special kind of object, namely one that's standing in for another object, right? And that could be something either uh, concrete or abstract. And as we're seeing today, um, it is increasingly abstract. I don't know when the last time was that I that I had coins in my pocket or banknotes in my pocket. And so we're moving towards a um a, a state where money is no longer something you put in your pocket uh but it still does the same thing and that's yeah. because there's a there's a representation there or someone is keeping track of yeah. the of the amount so i mentioned earlier there's two camps on the nature of what yeah. money is two major yeah. and the first the first um you You'll be happy to know you're you're in good company with your account of money as moving in the direction of increased abstraction. Mm -hmm. So on this, uh, money was originally some object that stood in for something. So we got whales' teeth, or stones, or shells, or cigarettes, um, which was gradually represented by coin, and that became paper money, and then we have credit money, and so it's moving in the direction um, from basically cash to credit, in increasingly in the direction of abstraction. Uh, the other camp says, uh, uh, no, it, it, uh, money is essentially, essential originally, mm. abstract in the sense you mean, but in the mm -hmm. sense that you meant, in that it is a credit relation full stop. What uh -huh. money is, is it's a particular kind of credit. Um, and so sort of criterial, uh, criterial uh, feature of money is that it always is and always will be and always yeah. was um, abstract in that sense, that it's not the materiality of the object which gives it value. Right. It's, it is the uh, social relation yeah. that the object is standing in for, right. which was the source of the value. And so that in a way that the, the credit nature or the abstract nature of money is not a, a recent uh, development. It's, right. just, it's, it's, there, it's there definitionally and it's there historically right. um, a, 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 as what of, of the moneyness of money. Right, right, right. And so I suppose that we happened to come along in history at a somewhat unusual time where we got to live through a transition from concrete banknotes in the pocket as the norm uh, to um, a different system of keeping track, right? So it, de it, de <laughs> it depends on who you ask. I mean, so the question is, uh, to what extent is the money supply uh, mm -hmm. hard currency? Right. And that, that does change historically. Yeah. Yeah, um, well, we need to talk and, about that. The 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 also the 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 shift away from the gold standard um, to, as far as I can tell, currency yeah. backed by threat of force um, right. and nothing else, which right. um, which is really weird in a way that I think some uh, libertarian uh, 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 types figured out long before I did, and I only <laughs> recently started thinking about this. Um, Right. And so there's um there is a historical question about the, the extent to which in any given historical period the money supply is something that's um basically is a hard commodity or mm -hmm. is collateralized or instantiated in a hard commodity. Mm -hmm. And um 
how much of the money supply is not. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that this is really a question for an economic historian because it does. Right. Um, although I would resist, or I would at least wonder, in any given historical period, um, it seems to me the default is most of the money in circulation, and of course there would be exceptions in this historical matter, um, is is not hard currency. Uh-huh. Um, but again, this de- de- varies from historical period and it depends on the circumstances. But mm-hmm. it certainly may be the case, one, in our own experience from moving in that direction. And it's cert- and it definitely is the case that in our own understanding of the conceptualization yeah. of money is yeah. is uh, is moving. Whether or not our practices right. of um, currency and monetization are also tracking that change is a different question. They're related, of course, but what do you think would have happened? Here's a weird counterfactual, but what do you think would have happened in human history if there had been no gold or silver? Yeah, this is uh, what the part I love this question. <laughs> I kind of I, I think of this as like a human thought experiment. If we came all upon it once in a, a new world and they were like us in every respect, um, except they just did their planet didn't have this particular element of gold. Mm-hmm. What would mm-hmm. that world be like? Yeah. Um, and so, it, it, and would they have? Would that society have money? Um, so, I guess I'll, I'll I'll answer with an anecdote. To my knowledge, to my in my own life, I've never had gold. I I must have seen it in like a museum or maybe yeah, like right. You know, there's some out west in the Dakotas. You can go in rivers and try to sift for gold. I don't ever remember seeing gold. So this is a, a weird feature of our society yeah. um, that I live and move and have my being in a monetary uh, environment. Yeah. Um, I don't possess any gold. I never, right, I've never right, had any right. desire to possess right, gold. Right. So this is a long way of answering your question. Uh, <laughs> it would make, it, at least in my own case, makes zero difference whatsoever. In fact, maybe I would be annoyed or encumbered by gold. I would lose it. Um, so anyway, I think it's 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 exactly the right question to be asking because it exposes the extent to which um, gold plays so little uh, role in our own yeah. life. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the question is really why it is we're f- anyway bewitched by a conception of money as if it somehow has to be traced back to a claim of to a, a claim on a certain um, weight of gold. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which is a different kind of question. Right, right, right. I mean, I suppose, um, from what I know, the first evidence comes from like, what, 4500 BCE in the Balkans. And before that, we don't have any trace of people using gold as a precious commodity. Um, But presumably, they were using shells or whale's teeth or any number of other things in a way that looks like money to us. But still, what's interesting about gold and silver is that the the global reserves are seem to be perfectly uh, calibrated to give us just the amount of value we need, right? Um, like if there were a ton of it, then, or yeah, a ton, I mean, there's a lot more than a ton, but if there were, you know, a hundred times more of it, then it would be worthless. If it were, you know, basically practically non-existent, it wouldn't be something you could found an economy on either, right? Yeah, well, I don't know. I'm just, I'm not sure the extent to which when we're making big monetary decisions, say about uh, uh, whether we can go another trillion in debt, 
I, I would be surprised <laughs> if anybody does a quick inventory of gold and it says, um, you know, <laughs> the Fed is thinking of lowering the interest rates. It'll have this monetary implication. Uh, mm -hmm. Then they send a staffer out to like, check yeah. how much gold they have. I just. Um, right. That, well, it's disconnected now, but um, that's because we passed through the other end of this thousands year long history where it was yeah. bedrock of what we thought of as monetary value, right? Like to get to the, the very kind of uh, um, specific historical cases like the coin clipping crisis in England right. that John right. Locke was so worried about, right? Like you clip a coin today and nobody worries about, um, about it's, uh, you know, like losing the whatever value, the percentage of value that corresponds to the amount of the coin right. that has been clipped off. That's behind us now, but still it seems unlikely that we would have conceptualized monetary value now in the same way if we hadn't gone through all of that. Right. Um, right. It's, and I will just say as an, as a, matter of economic historiography i myself don't know when gold started to play that role was it in medieval europe mm. uh, what role it played in the united states um you know so it, the, the first coinage that we that we know of uh, was stamped on electrum which is a gold silver alloy right See, for most of history silver played a much larger role in right yeah um so it is an open historical question this is where we need historians yeah. um historians to weigh in i'm I guess I, I am skeptical whether, in fact, we have had thousands of years of history of hmm. um, pegging the identity of money to gold. Interesting. Okay. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, we shouldn't. I shouldn't presuppose that without doing proper research. It, you know, go ahead. It certainly is the case that um, coinage, coinage is stamped on precious metals, hmm. silver, gold. Um, but more... It just just as often, um, sometimes simultaneously with with the circulation of gold um, coinage, you get copper coins. You get yeah. all kinds. Um, and the the fascinating thing um, is when is um, oftentimes copper coins will circulate at face value at the same time. Right. That gold and silver are circulated at face value. Um, so this is to put a little bit of uh, a little bit of pressure on the presumption that we've moved that we historically have moved from a gold-based monetary standard to something else and we're now trying to make sense of what this other thing is yeah um it's it seems to be the case that whatever it is we have now is what we always had yeah um yeah and uh, the role that gold played in its service and being very stampable and yeah. also it, it holds a certain amount of collateral within it so there's yeah. a basic when you put a stamp a nominal value on a coin, there is a basement floor to how low the value that can drop. So at a certain point, right. if if um, it's inflated to a, to such a point that the coin is worth more as the metal, you can right. you can basically take your collateral and leave, which right. is what the coin clippers were doing. Right. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. You know, in my own life, I've had a curious experience with money in that I was on a study abroad program uh, in Leningrad in 1990, in the final collapsing months of the Soviet Union, and the ruble was worth 
basically nothing. Nobody wanted to touch it. They wouldn't yeah. bother to accept it. Dollars and Finnmarks and Deutschmarks and so on were technically illegal. So many people were afraid to touch those. So there was a default to Marlboro Reds. And, um, you know, there was a very kind of well-established rate where one pack of Marlboro Reds was a taxi ride across town. <laughs> um, and everybody accepted these whether whether they smoked or not, right? And they only wanted Marlboro Reds. <laughs> and it was fascinating the way this emerged spontaneously and became a social fact, like as real as money is, right? It was money. It wasn't barter. It was money because it was like the only thing that counted. <laughs> yeah. Um, one thing I'll point out, and maybe I would insist a sort of criteria for money, mm. is that money, unlike a precious metal, can die. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. That's what he's saying. In the oh, case yeah. of the, the ruble, is somehow... Um, circulating money or the monetary value dies yeah it, it ends um and what one of the takeaways or one of the things that would signal is whatever it is the moneyness of that currency can't um can't be in its uh sort of empirical or material properties right so the material properties don't change at all yeah um, right, right. but the moneyness right of the coin is no more it's disappeared right. the, the money has died the coin right. has not the silver has not right that's um, a really so interesting criteria what yeah. then <laughs> what is it about money mm. um, that it is the kind of thing that it can it can vanish in right. front of us even though no there's been no change to the empirical properties right. that seems to force us back to the view that it's a it's a social relation of some sort right, right? There's, there's no <laughs> right. other possible conclusion because of course social relations can die People, right. people can break right. up. You can say, right. "Look, this this um, political organization isn't walking away." We can we can uh, you know, have civil wars. Um, likewise, money can undergo similar transformations. Right. Um, where, whereas, though, uh, co coinage or um, metal cannot. Right. 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 Obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Is there any other conceivable? physical or natural resource that could ever play the role of mon uh, that that say silver has as the basis of monetary exchange well i mean so the answer is either it's, it's yes any any object could i mean so yeah. um tally sticks in england were just uh yeah. strips of wood yeah um everything from anything anything can be uh, mm -hmm. monetize anything can be currency there are reasons why silver and gold are such work so well as currency i mean mm -hmm. they're portable they're stampable um but you i <laughs> you can write a note on a piece yeah. of paper um and if somebody accepts it and says this is credible if i say here here's yeah. a sticky note take this to the bank and they'll liquidate it for you that sticky note to the extent that the bank will liquidate it and that you believe the bank will liquidate it is 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 operating as money right Right, um, right. So right, it's, right. it's virtually the answer is yeah. Anything, anything, and everything. And um, indeed, indeed, once you push it that far, it becomes pretty easy to see that a verbal promise could also count. Right. right. So the um, the difficulty with verbal promises is that they are difficult to transfer. Mm -hmm. So if if 
part of what makes money money is not that it has a promissory character, um, but that the promise can be transferred. Mm-hmm. It is very difficult to transfer a promise by word of mouth. So let me give you an example. Let's say you need help um, carrying a couch you know, down from your apartment. And I say, mm-hmm. look, and you ask me for help. And I say, I promise. I promise I'll be there Friday evening to move your couch. And that's a promise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or we could write it down. Um, what that not isn't yet money. Right. What could happen to make that money is if I was somehow, is it, I, I, you have a, an obligation, liability on me and I have an obligation to you. That's just a mm. promise. That's just an mm-hmm. obligation. If I was somehow able to transfer that obligation to someone else, mm-hmm. or likewise, you were able to transfer that liability and mm-hmm. a claim on me to someone else. Um, now we've ch- We've we still have a promise, we still have an obligation, but we've changed the nature of it such that the promise is transferable yeah. to a third party. Yeah. So what we might say is that money is a class, it's it's a class of obligation of promise. It's a mm-hmm. it's a form of credit and debt. Just like my promise to move your couch is a form of credit and debt. Mm-hmm. But that's not yet money. What mm-hmm. has to happen for that to be monetized is for you to be able to say, um, so, like, look, somebody Tingley owes me this couch carrying thing. I don't actually need to move my couch anymore. I like my couch. I'm going to leave it here, but right. I still have this this amount of credit. I right. tell you, I'll, you go to your neighbor who maybe happens to need their couch moved, and if you could transfer yeah. transfer that obligation to them, right? In, in, in for whatever reason, now all of a sudden the promise is becoming liquid. Right. It's becoming it's becoming fungible and tradable. Right. Um, and it's we might say we have the first glimmerings of a promise becoming monetized. Right. It would be it would be increasingly monetized to the extent that that promise can travel, uh-huh. um, not just to a third party, right, but fluidly to any third party. Yeah, and I suppose. Um, conceivably i mean ordinarily we would suppose that that would have to be done with a written contract or something like that but conceivably it could be done with a memorized sequence of numbers right a code that you would transfer verbally right one of the interesting sort of uh historical moments in the history of money is has to do with Roman law in the way in which contracts were basically authorized. Mm-hmm. Um, so we would, we would need a Roman historian to back us up on this. But my understanding is that the way that a law was authorized was by witness testimony. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So by, I mean, so it was, a, it was a verbal promise, but a verbal promise that was backed up by a witness. But mm-hmm. that's exactly, so that's very difficult to, to transfer. So like maybe I have a certain yeah. claim on your property, I have a lien on your property, and a witness has verified it. It's difficult for me to liquidate right. or even like sell shares in that if right. I'm rel- if the credibility of my claim relies on word of mouth. Yeah. So th- there's an interesting transition in Roman law at the point at which the basically the, the credibility of the contract is written, and once it can be written, then the <laughs> the written receipt of the contract can then be transferred to a third party. So interesting, um, and it makes it much easier then to more like monetize. Um, material resources like land or yeah capital. yeah yeah uh, but but it, it's it's really because of how difficult it is to transfer word of mouth agreements word of mouth promises um, yeah that make that um basically that, that make it so much easier if you have some kind of written or objectified um symbol or record 
of that obligation. Right, right. Now right. I can pass it off. Right, right. You know, there's this contemporary artist named Tino Segal for whom a part of his his art practice is when he sells the right to exhibit his work, which is entirely immaterial, to a museum, he has lawyers present, but none of this involves any documents. Mm -hmm. It all has to be verbal nods. And when I learned this about him, I did have this thought, well, if the agreement uh, to sell the work is just a verbal promise. Why not make the monetary exchange just a system of promises too? He still gets the real money, right? Um, but he just doesn't have to sign any documents for it. Yeah. But if every monetary claim in some ways is an obligation, you have a question of in, in virtue of what is the obligation enforced? So right. like I can say, I said I would come in, I promised to come and move your couch. It's Friday night. You call me on the phone and you say, uh, why are you not here to basically honor your obligation? And if mm -hmm. I were to say, what obligation? Mm -hmm. um, so if I were to, to deny that I had any recollection <laughs> of this, it's difficult for you to <laughs> enforce it unless you have right. some great threatening power over me. Right. Um, or if there were a way of exchanging exchanging some kind of code that you could right. only know if the promise had been right. made, right? <laughs> and, and that problem is compounded if in the meantime, you or I were to transfer the obligation to a third party. Right. Um, right. So right. those, so it's not impossible to monetize obligations in that way, but it becomes increasingly unwieldy. And you might say um, those are discounted or very low value obligations yeah. because they're so hard to enforce if yeah. we just have um, basically word of mouth passed along, you know, like the game of telephone, once you pass sure. it along 12 times, did I say I'd move your couch? Or did I say yeah. I would sit on your couch? Right. You know? right, right. Now, here's a very radical shift of gears, but something that might help us get closer to an answer to the, to the big question. Why is money throughout history in most cultures so strongly associated with sin and dirtiness um and oh, something sure. something that um you know it's really paradoxical in a way because we're forced to go out in search of it <laughs> but we're also constantly told that this search is um something um that on some level we ought not be doing, right? Um, where does that come from? So I, there's there's uh, several interesting <laughs> provocations you've raised. One is about the relationship between money and the concept of sin. Um, another, another related um, provocation is about an attitude that there's something unseemly, mm -hmm. immoral, um, corrupt about money. Um, those are related. I would, I would want to tease them apart and to say they're not exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. There is a fascinating, maybe beginning with the first one. Um, there's a fascinating conceptual relationship, um, between sin, the notion of sin in the, say, Judeo-Christian context and the notion of debt 
as an mm, economic concept. Yeah, I yeah. mean, of course, this is this is I shouldn't uh, posture as if I'm thinking out loud. This is exactly what Nietzsche says. In yeah, the, the idea of shul, um, right? Yeah, yeah shul. Um, it 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 turns out it's just the, like so. Nietzsche was Nietzsche was onto something. He he was right about this case. Um, the economic historian Michael Hudson has mm. done as much as anybody just to track this down, mm-hmm. beginning with the. Um, origins of debt and interest-bearing loans in, um, mm-hmm. in the ancient Near East, and mm-hmm. um, what what Hudson does is just show that the theological or the religious notions of sin are just—not just, but our loan terms are their concepts, their yeah. social structures yeah. um, that are borrowed from economic practices, and so the yeah. relationship between sin um, and Basically, being in debt are mm. literal and historic, and they're they're just they're just there. And so, in a right. way, what are the religious notion of sin is a spiritualization or or a, yeah. a spiritual development or yeah. a spiritual metaphor um, built upon economic relationship of being in debt and often being unable to get out of debt and having your debt ransomed, um, having yeah. your debt redeemed. Um, so. So, so that that's one, I, I think, fascinating c- connection. The extent to which our spiritual and religious concepts of s- sin, salvation, are continuous with um, and work within circuits that were laid down by economic practices. Yeah, I think a related but different question is why do we and why is it so prevalent to have moral scruples mm-hmm. about money? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and about monetary relations, um, and I think as a start, uh, as a start, one might say it's helpful to see the extent to which monetary relations are different in kind mm-hmm. than other social relations we can have. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and maybe one helpful distinction is between a personal connection where you know and care about a person, and mm-hmm. an impersonal connection where you don't. So mm-hmm. let's say when I, you asked me to come and carry your couch, what you really wanted was to spend the evening together. Like mm-hmm. you just wanted right. to hang out and the couch was a pretext. Right. Yeah. So the, the, what you thought the engagement was, was hanging out. Right. Um, and that was a personal connection. If I were to have understood the same relationship or the same request, it's actually an impersonal relationship. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't show up at all. I had my friend you know, who owed me you know, a six pack of beer yeah. or something. You... If you understood the agreement to be a personal one, you would yeah. have grounds to be offended or insulted yeah. or hurt um, because a monetary relation is structurally just different right. in kind than other kinds of relations that we have. And so yeah. if you assume the frame of reference, if you begin from a frame of reference by thinking about um, investment in and care about particular people, you will yeah. you will see the monetization or um uh, treating that relationship as monetized as mm. missing the point yeah and if it, as degrading the relationship that's um, so interesting yeah i i think uh, this this is just oh sorry go ahead go ahead no, no i was just gonna i was just gonna spit all more examples but you, you get the point uh, well, that it will always from the point of view basically a, f- a friendship from yeah. the point of view of a close of a close community who knows and cares about each other money is a different way of arranging ourselves yeah. and um and often will degrade or corrupt that relationship. Yeah. And so from that point of view, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a problem. Yeah, I think this example is discussed by David Graeber in Debt from 
what, 15 years ago or so, 10 or 15 years ago now, um, where he talks about the, uh, per, uh, the uh, I think this is, is an example drawn from Chinese culture, um, the idea of infinite debt towards your parents, right? Right, right? So if a son were to come back to his father with a bunch of money and say, here yeah. you go, dad, I'm paying you off. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the contract is closed. Um, yeah. I'm no longer <laughs> right. in debt towards yeah. you. Um, it yeah. would be a tremendous offense, but yep. it would also just fail to recognize the true nature of the parent-child yep. relationship, which cannot be rendered in financial terms because you owe your parents your life, right? There's nothing worse you can do for a friendship than refuse to accept a favor. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah. and say like you know you're having drinks with somebody and they say this one's on me. And if you insist on paying, I I ordered one beer, I will pay for my beer. Yeah, my right. beer was this price, and my tip. Right. Um, what you are saying is I have no interest in this relationship continuing. Yeah. Um, what what sustains the relationship is a series of uh, debts and obligations and promises. Super interesting. Um, yeah. So the, taking a step back. The point is that a monetary relationship is different in kind than other yeah. kinds of relationships we would have. And if you inhabit the point of view of these other relationships, let's just call them. I mean, so in a way, Graeber um, just thinks these are our default human condition of mm -hmm. friendship, caring, community. Mm -hmm. um, from those low-grade, everyday, communistic um, mm -hmm. points of view, money will will disrupt and change mm. the nature of those relationships. And so yeah. from that point of view, um, it will look like a threat and it'll be something to yeah. hold at arm's yeah. length. Yeah. yeah. One thing I've noticed in uh, extensive sojourns in Eastern Europe, uh, not only cigarette exchange, but also just a general uh, pervasive custom of gift giving, which is, from my point of view, very thinly disguised financial transaction, yeah, pretending sure, sure. Yes, to be yes. friendship, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And to me, it's just a pain in the ass because you have yeah. to you have to give someone a gift. And my attitude is always like, well then they're just going to have to give us another gift yeah. next time. <laughs> yeah. But in, in a way, that's the point of gift giving, what a, what a true gift is. And there's always a, a question to what extent what is circulating as though it were a gift really is, in fact, a, um, a yeah. kind of a kind of uh, cash payment or a, a secure cash payment. But to mm -hmm. the extent that it's a gift, one um, might argue the point of the gift, in fact, is to create a debt that has to be um, sustained into the future. Yeah, so the point right, right, is right. creating a relationship yeah, that doesn't yeah. close. Whereas the point of a cash transaction it's is that it, it, yeah. it, it yeah. closes, it cancels out the transaction so that there is no, no more claim that one has on you, which was, which is what makes pain for something, <laughs> you know, like uh, what, when somebody wants to be friends with you and they insist on paying for the beer, you're like, no, I'm, <laughs> please let me pay. I really want to cash yeah. out this relationship. Yeah. Right. Um. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's funny, isn't it? But, you know, I guess under certain circumstances, parents can give their children gift certificates. Yeah, yes. Yeah as presents or even just some cash in an envelope of yeah. um, like there are circumstances where <laughs> cash is a, a suitable gift, but it would be a major misfire, um, yeah. say 
on a on a second date to bring a hundred dollar bill. <laughs> the other interesting thing about cash as a gift is it. Uh, well, let me put it this way: parents can give children cash, but yeah. children ought not yeah. give parents cash right, as a right. gift. That's um, really interesting. Yeah. Um, so the, in a way, there's a status function to gifts, um, and there's a status signaling, and there's status reinforcing yeah. to gifts. Um, in a way that there isn't to cash transactions. And this, again, is part of the nature of what money is and what cash is, is that the transaction can um, conclude irrespective of the status, the social status of the holder. So right. uh, money doesn't care if you're tall or short. Money doesn't care right. what um, it's. Uh, so m- money is status agnostic all it cares is who has the money right Um, it it doesn't care if you if you're self-important or not yeah um which is why money can be stolen Mm -hmm. but status cannot right um so like let's say we're we're having a couple drinks and you walk away uh you leave your wallet on the table i can take your cash Mm -hmm. um but let's say everybody thinks you're cool um (laughs) and i you know i'm really jealous of this everybody thinks you're rich and you're cool you can walk away from the table i take your money now i'm slightly richer and you're slightly less rich but i can't steal your coolness right um, right, because coolness has to do with you as a person and your social status as a person whereas um money has to do with uh neither and again this is this is sort of trying to work our way towards a definition of what money is what kind of social relation it is something to know about it yeah i suppose this is related to the difficulties that say the nouveau riche have of buying their way into right. the aristocracy right yeah. um right. uh it's not that easy to just right. to just just pay for it yeah, um, exactly. even though it's pretty clear that eventually uh with a you just <laughs> be, be a little bit patient and um they'll forget you're uh you're an arriviste right. soon enough right, right? It's, it's part of the hazing the generational hazing process <laughs> right. uh, earn your right, way in right, right, exactly right. Yeah. well let's let's try it and find out i gotta let's let's try to let's, yeah, let's get right, a pile of cash and see if we can how long we have to be posers before the aristocrats <laughs> right. accept us as one of the plutocrats <laughs> so maybe another way because we're both philosophers and we're both now thinking about philosophy and money though you've been thinking about it longer than i have um let's try to maybe think a little bit about the relationship between philosophy and money. Uh, It's significant perhaps that the title of this work is uh, the handbook of philosophy and money, not the philosophy of money. Uh Um, And that's a thing. There's a relationship between the two, uh, but it's not the same relationship as say between philosophy and science or philosophy and mind or whatever else there's a philosophy of right right so that's yes. one one curious thing but also um uh in the history of philosophy of course there's a lot of reflection on money um um particularly fruitful and and active in ancient Greece and we have all sorts of, ideas passed down to us that we might even you know know about today without no- knowing where they come from such as for example the cynic uh injunction to deface the coin right mm-hmm. and in a sense um i mean i've never really been quite sure that i understood the depths of that of that command all of its uh, significance but in general there seems to be an important relationship between 
philosophy and disdain for money, right? Um, and um, it certainly doesn't pay terribly well. Um, uh, but uh, I, I was wondering if there's a a, a special relationship here. Um, so uh, a, few, a few things by way of trying to uh, impose some order on these really rich questions. Um, one is that there is, as you point out, a reason the the title of the project I'm editing is philosophy and money rather than philosophy of money. Mm. Um, so there, when, when you're interested in the relationship between philosophy and money, there's two kinds of questions you might be asking. One, you might say, given that philosophy is what it is, it has certain concepts, it has certain norms, it has certain governing methodology, it's a, it's a certain kind of intellectual tool, then you can train that tool on any number of objects, one of which is money. Mm -hmm. When you're doing that, you're doing a philosophy of money. Mm -hmm. And that's, a, that's a, what, by the, a wonderful project. It should be, there's not enough of it done. Uh, mm -hmm. We should do this. In addition, another kind of question you can raise is to say, given that money is what money is, what is philosophy? Right. Meaning that um, it may not be obvious what it is we're doing mm -hmm. when we consider ourselves to be doing philosophy, mm -hmm. and that to an extent to which we underappreciate or don't appreciate at all, that philosophy, the practice of philosophy, the discipline of philosophy, the, um, the relationships of philosophy may track along with money in ways that are surprising. <laughs> Yeah. Um, no, that's a different kind of question. That's a different mm -hmm. kind of question than given that philosophy has these certain methods. What does it tell us about money? Mm -hmm. um, it's that given the other uh, the other question is given that money does works in a certain way, it requires certain relations and requires certain concepts. Um, why is it that philosophy either does or seems to crop up? Mm -hmm. in the same context that monetary relations crop up mm, and, and, yeah. and in fact is it true that it does yeah, um, yeah. that's a different so um, I, I would add, i would add maybe a corollary of that point which is that or maybe put things slightly differently and say what we are prepared to recognize as philosophy right. tends to it, track pretty closely the motion of global financial centers right uh that is to say uh, our philosophers tend to be found pretty close to the stock exchanges. <laughs> and uh, another, um, so to the extent that we use that as a clue or hypothesis or heuristic, one of the things that that might do for us is if we happen to find historically, identify maybe in a culture we weren't expecting a large amount of financial uh, transactions, a large amount of sort of sophisticated, innovative financial transactions. What we might then ask is, do we also see in these kind of culture the sort of philosophical activity that we yeah. found in these other global, um, these other global financial centers? Yeah. Um, and then we <laughs> then we have to turn to the history to see if those relationships still hold. Yeah. Um, so there's 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 a lot there's there's a lot to unpack there, and what part of what's interesting is that it, the the field is open. It, it requires a, a a lot of um, you know good work like your own to start to tease through this. But if I could just attempt to impose some some signposts along the way of unpacking mm -hmm. the relationship between philosophy and money, one there's a historical connection. 
Mm-hmm. In that, this is just what you said, where money seems to crop up and to hold sway as a dominant cultural force, what we recognize as philosophy also seems to, to crop up as a dominant cultural right. force. There's a conceptual or a linguistic relationship in that an, any number of philo- philosophical concepts, such as rationality, mm-hmm. such as in, in the Nietzschean case of uh, moral guilt, are loan terms from mm. economic practices right? to such an extent that it actually becomes a challenge. It's like a, <laughs> a really bo- boring party game to try to find exceptions to the rule, right. like find, find a, a fundamental philosophical concept where the word itself isn't a um, conceptual development of a prior economic process. Right, right. Okay, so th- there's a metaphysical relationship between philosophy and money in the sense that it's an open question whether we can even conceive of an object or a thing in which case that the, if if the thing is not um a commodity or sellable like so right. it's an open what would be an example of a thing that's not in principle um couldn't be put have a monetary value on it now yeah. if that's the case and i'm i'm open to exceptions but if that's the case then what we would have is a one to one relationship between objectivity, mm. thingness, yeah. and monetary value. Now, yeah. that's something to know about our metaphysics is like yeah, no. um, that there is a very tight, there's a very tight fit between yeah. the way our metaphysics is carving up the world and the way that the way the money um, would be carving I, up the world. I was about to say, oh, maybe the planet Pluto or an asteroid in the main belt, but no, because people do talk about asteroid mining and the potential value, and economists do, as experiments, try to estimate things like the value of the Earth, right? Right. (laughs) Like the the actual monetary value of the Earth, or let's say, of the solar system. Um, And, you know, even if the, the actual practical circumstances in which you could extract this value are very far away, um, it's still estimable, right? And exactly. And I think in uh, uh, one can go on and on about these really odd, and I think in a way unexpected relationships between monetary relations and monetary concepts and just core foundational philosophical concepts. Mm-hmm. I'll just maybe I'll just stop with one more example. Yeah. So Marx Marx famously said logic is the money of the mind. In mm-hmm. that the the way our, our formal <laughs> symbolic That's logic beautiful. systems are operating is I, similar, identical to yeah. the way um, double entry bookkeeping is operating. Yeah. <laughs> like the operations yeah. are the same, yeah. um, and in fact, accounting preceded symbolic yeah. logic yeah. by yeah. 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 Know, hundreds, thousands of years. Yeah. Um, so, in, in a way, that the foundational activities of philosophy. Um, track closely mm-hmm. with monetary and economic practices to such an extent that it at least opens up the question what's going on here yeah, um, yeah. to yeah. to what extent are to what extent are philosophy and money related to what extent can you tease them apart and right. say so now here's a philosophical concept here's a philosophical relation on which there is no monetary equivalent whatsoever i'm not right. denying there is one but it seems increasingly like that's the exception to the rule yeah, philosophical concepts. <laughs> this is uh, an attempt to think deeply through what's implied or inherent in it's monetary so concepts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we've talked a lot about history, maybe just a little bit about the 
contemporary moment and perhaps even if we dare the future uh imagine say 50 years from now when we are uh surveilled every step we take um and we have uh we we have on our little apple watch or whatever replaces that oh, yeah. um a constant monitor of our social credit score right yeah. uh which goes down a little bit when we jaywalk um <laughs> or goes up a little bit when we help an old lady across the street or whatever yeah. and that's just always going and there's a vast system in which the the higher your social credit score is um the more social advantages you will have yeah. right could it be at some point that would obviate the need to also have a bank account. Um, do you see what I'm saying? Like, like there could be such a pervasive sure. social credit system yeah. that it would just yeah. replace what we think of as money, or would that just become money? Well, it depends on who's doing the enforcing. So, if you're like a state's doing the enforcing, the state, there's no yeah. reason in prison or even in practice. This, I mean, the state in, um, for example, North Dakota has a state bank. There's no reason. You, they couldn't directly uh, charge the fees. Uh, you, the, the camera caught you jaywalking. If you have an account at the Bank of North Dakota, they can mm -hmm. just deduct your account. Um, right. So um, yeah. that may be more difficult if you have an account <laughs> in a private bank, although mm -hmm. not impossible. I understand, mm -hmm. although I don't know that um, when there was the truck blockade in Canada, somehow mm -hmm. the people oh, right. uh, who yeah. the, their bank accounts were frozen, yeah. even though their yeah. bank accounts were with with private bank Canadian banks. Right, right, right. Um, yeah. So in a way, that's not the that's not fifty years in the future. <laughs> it just is. Right, that's um, not. Yeah. But I should also say, and, and not to be glib, um, there's an extent. It's not just the future and the present, but this is the past of money as well. Yeah, so we began by thinking um, the extent to which money. Is sort of downstream from gold and mineral properties. There's an alternative history of money in which the the origins of money is in um, law, mm -hmm. and particular in criminal law, and mm -hmm. that the and sometimes in in, in retribution. Um, the point I'm trying to make is that it's in fines and fees. Yeah, the, the way in which a, a state through the agency of courts will um, assess so uh, fines and fees for any number of infractions mm -hmm. is um, on this line of thought is what it is that gives um, the unit of account or the measure right. of value to money. That right. Basically, the, the state is what uh, the state is what's able to define the uh, the value of money precisely in um, issuing fines and fees to right. people that consider scoff laws. Right. rule breakers so that right. in a way this isn't this isn't 50 years into the future this is 500 years into the past yeah right right um, right right yeah that yeah. money is originally um a a legal juridical jurisdictional um, relationship mm -hmm. and then it gets its value so what pegs the value is what the state will charge yeah. for any number of infractions from yeah. um from, yeah, i suppose go oh, ahead no i was just going to say i suppose um that the variety of new ways of having standing in the world, like, say, having a large social media following, um, or, say, being from a country with a passport that uh, doesn't require you to get visas to travel internationally, and so on and so on. There are all sorts of new ways of having something of value um, for 
you know, opening up possibilities in your life or contributing to your thriving um, that we t- we we're inclined to see as not financial in nature, right? Um, and my suspicion sometimes has been that these might take over right your social media following people people will say well how are you going to monetize that you might say well actually it's money itself right you see what i'm saying yeah. um yeah yeah so there i think there's no reason in principle that um one couldn't monetize so the number of followers you have um and there's no reason in principle that that couldn't become the way in which we measure value mm-hmm. um but it would what it would have, so what the world would have to be like that you would use as your unit of account. So mm-hmm. um, the number of followers you have, rather than the amount of tax credit you. So, like in America, an American dollar is basically a tax liability of the state. That's how we measure yeah. the amount of wealth. So this is how we measure the amount of wealth we possess. We measure them in tax liabilities of the state. There's no reason in principle we couldn't measure them and trade them in number mm-hmm. of followers. Um, but at least for me, I'm a fairly unimaginative person. <laughs> what it would take for the world um, to be like that exceeds my capacity of imagination, um, <laughs> in part because what the state has that you, as far as I know, don't is an ability to enforce yeah. the liability. Yeah. Um, and so this is sort of what's scary about money, as you alluded to earlier, is what gives the tax liability teeth. In a way, what gives it value is uh, the the state can extract it whether or not I wanted to. Yeah. Um, and that may be, I'd say, um, what provides a sort of floor or provide provides the unit of account, provides the the moneyness, the value of the money. Yeah. Um, you would need something similar um, yeah. f- to back up monetizing the number of followers yeah. you have. So it's not that it couldn't be done. Yeah. Um, but if if we're disputing how many followers is worth a pack of gum or something, um, <laughs> right. the, the, state, the state can enforce it by saying, well, this is how much you owe me in taxes. How right. you can enforce this is you're going to have to give me three followers rather than two. Yeah. Um, and I, I suppose this, what you are saying is very relevant for thinking about the recent deflation of some of the high hopes of crypto uh people had placed in cryptocurrency right yeah. where they really thought they could generate financial value by buzz alone right <laughs> um and things were valued highly insofar as they could keep the buzz going well you, i mean so you you can <laughs> that's what well, that's what that's what a bubble but, is yeah yeah so, but but there was there was nothing behind this further and the great kind of um you know liberatory hope that many of these uh libertarian crypto um uh, uh, lovers um uh, are thrilled about is that there's no state to to um come in and take yep. control of this but for that very reason for the reasons you've just spelled out it's hard therefore also to see it as money um right and i I'm not an economist, so I can't. <laughs> uh, I, I can't dispense economic advice, but I would be <laughs> surprised if um, digital currency would that its price that its price volatility would even out more so than any asset. 
mm-hmm. if it lacks some um, basically an enforcement mechanism by which it can just stipulate, it can just mm-hmm. stipulate and require right. um, a, a floor of value to its currency. Right. Um, I, it, 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 that's what gives stability and non-volatility to any fiat currency is the, it's the force. It's so force, if you want right. to drop out the force, um, it can have value, but the value will fluctuate depending on um, what people are willing to buy and sell for it. And there's no bottom to what people may be, there's no, there's no ceiling to what people may be willing right. to buy for, but there's also no bottom. Right. Um, right, right. Whereas there is a bottom to, to the extent that you have a function state, yeah. there's a bottom to how low the, the value of the currency can go. Um, right. Now, if, if, if you no longer have a function state, that bottom can drop out as well. Right. Um, right. 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 But I mean, so well, time will tell. We'll see if the, if the volatility of Bitcoin somehow um, is more, is, is, is a stable asset. Um, right. Right. To, right. to be, to be determined. Right. Well, you know, this is an episode of what is X, where I'm pretty certain I'm winding up in Aparia. Uh, very, um, very firmly and clearly. Sometimes I'm not really sure which it is, but this is mostly just because um, uh, it is such a complex topic, isn't it? <laughs> if, if I could say... Uh, money is one of those topics where I would consider it a major accomplishment to if we ended in aporia, by which I mean there is, um, you know, so I mean, <laughs> to, to borrow from the quotable Mark Twain, uh, it, 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 ain't, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you think you know for sure that just ain't true. Right, right, um, right, right. So the, the problem with money is that we don't think we know what it is. We have lots of viable um, and sort of pressing and dominant accounts of money. Mm-hmm. Um, that in a way they're, uh, that are false, yeah, <laughs> are false, and um, that then tend to obscure any further knowledge of what money is or inquiry into what money is. And so, um, there's a certain amount of critical work of removing <laughs> the picture that has us bewitched, right? Um, in order to get up and running a question of what is money, um, mm-hmm. I think needs to be done. So mm-hmm. I will, I will take aporia. As, as, a, as a win, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. If it can, if it can loosen the dominant conceptions of money that turn out to be to have us in its grips, yeah, to be to be false in any number of ways. Right, right, right. Well, it's weird because it's like in the case of the Marlboros in Leningrad. Um, it's such an incontrovertible social fact, right? Like you're walking along in an alley and you see a suitcase on the on the floor and you open it and it's filled with hundred dollar bills. Like that is one powerful social fact right there. It's like, <laughs> whoa, this is a lot of money. And it that just seems so certain, more certain than you know, the the impenetrability of a wall or or whatever, <laughs> that 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 it's surprising that upon reflection we don't understand what that certainty consists in right but it's not necessarily i mean you may find a trunk full of uh, bills and you can say in it, with certainty it's a trunk full of bills wow that's a lot of bills it's not true it's a, it's a lot of money so say uh you know argentina yeah. so you, you might need a, a suitcases full of bills just to buy your coffee in the morning right yeah uh, yeah yeah i should have i should have added uh with a number of other social facts presupposed, yeah. right? But the, inter- the the social fact you need to presuppose is money. 
Yeah, what money is as a unit of account before you'd open a a suitcase and say, this is full of money. It's it's, it's really the weird thing about money is on one hand, we just, (laughs) we presuppose it um, before we start giving a definition of how it works and how it functions. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Well, aporia it is. <laughs> uh, all, all in a day's work. <laughs> <laughs> That's our job. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, thanks, Joseph. That, uh, this has been a really fun episode. Again, this is What is X? I'm Justin E.H. Smith for The Point Magazine, and I have been talking to Joseph Tingley uh, about money and what it is. Let's talk again soon. Thanks. See you later. Bye, Justin.